Hello, this is John. It's Wednesday, March 20th, and we're podcasting from the law offices of Bregman, Berbert, Schwartz, and Gilday in Bethesda, Maryland. You had a trained paramilitary force attack peaceful protesters. The people who were protecting President Erdogan came across police lines and beat up our clients, hit them on the head, kicked them, got them on the ground, and bloodied them. This is not only uh, an effort to gain compensation for people who were physically and psychologically injured, but also a way to make a statement that this kind of activity of thugs beating up demonstrators will not be something that we can allow in our country. This is Podcasting with John Metaxas. Hello and welcome to the podcast. Today we speak with attorneys Douglas Bregman and Andrea Sakaris about their civil lawsuit that they've filed against the Republic of Turkey over the beating of lawful protesters on U.S. soil almost two years ago on May 16th, 2017. Gentlemen, thanks for hosting the podcast at your offices today. It's our pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Doug and Andreas, I I think all Americans who saw the video of that attack on lawful protesters were shocked. Uh, What's the crux of your case? The crux of our case is a damages case against the Republic of Turkey to gain compensation for five individuals, uh, four of whom were uh, beaten up. Uh, One was beaten up severely to the point where she has um, neurological problems even today, two years later. Now, we've heard of the concept of sovereign immunity. What makes you think that you can actually uh, file and potentially win a lawsuit against a a sovereign country? So the Sovereign Immunity uh, Act has exceptions. And we feel very strongly that we fit within several of those. Most notably is uh, Section 28 U.S.C. 1605B. That is uh, referred to as the Justice Against Sponsors of Terrorism Act, JASTA. And under JASTA, one can sue a country, uh, even if it's not a terrorist country by, de- by definition, if they are involved in terrorist activities. And we believe that Turkey, in this particular attack at Sheridan Circle, was uh, equated to acting as a terrorist state. And and considering uh, the idea of immunity, many people get confused because people think of the idea of uh, U.S. constitutional immunity. And there's 11th Amendment means you you can't sue the sovereign. You can't sue the government unless it says so. But that's not the case when suing a foreign government because the immunity that's accorded a foreign government is dealt through legislation, not through the Constitution. So whereas constitutional immunity is absolute, legislative immunity is restrictive. And so when a foreign sovereign conducts itself outside of the scope of state activities, i.e. just beating someone up for whatever malicious reason you have, then you're actually acting like an individual. You're actually acting like someone beyond the scope of any reason to give you immunity, and that is how we hail them into the court, because they fit into that exception. So we're, 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 we're very confident about that aspect. And international terrorism is defined as an act that involves violent acts and a violation of the criminal laws of the United States. And in our case, we had um, several of the people who were 
uh, indicted, two were convicted and put in jail, who were involved in the attacks on behalf of uh, the Republic of Turkey. Uh, international terrorism also has to appear to be intended to intimidate or coerce a civilian population. Clearly, that's what happened at Sheridan Circle. And lastly, transcend national boundaries in terms of the means by which they are accomplished or the persons they appear intended to intimidate or coerce. And those three elements are present in our case. And that's important, that this was a violation of U.S. law. That's the key point here. Is that right? That is correct. So uh, this is a, uh, not only what we call legally wrong, but morally wrong. And, it, and, and that is what has, I think, shocked so many people. It not only violates U.S. law on U.S. soil in the center of the nation's capital. Let's just uh, take a step back from the legal a second, uh, Andreas, and, mm -hmm. and just tell us about the moral strength of your case. Uh, how bad, in your view, uh, was this attack, and, and what made it especially egregious? Well, I think, you know, ergo omnes, or, or ipso facto. Explain it for our audience, right. please. So ergo omnes is this universal understanding of something that is wrong. And ergo omnes springs forth from morally wrong, morally reprehensible. And it is something, when you say ergo omnes, it means even the cultures that are Hindu, even a culture that's Catholic or Jewish or Muslim, quickly understands this is wrong. Why? Because you have a visceral reaction. And the reaction to this has been visceral. That is, I mean, our greatest sort of sense of moral strength in this hasn't just been our own reaction, because we could say we're lawyers and we think a little differently about this. The public outcry, the fact that the entire D.C. Metropolitan Police Force wanted to move forward and prosecute. The fact that you had a grand jury arraignment, meaning people came in, presented with the evidence and said, yes, throw the book at these guys. The fact that all these newspapers and media, everyone went ballistic. But, you know, the best was, remember, Doug, we received a couple emails from a few people who were like, please, go get these guys. People we don't know, because it's an outrage. It offends the fundamental notions that the Constitution was meant to your civil liberties, right? And why do we have civil liberties? Because we know from history how wrong it was to treat people unfairly and wrongly. It's immoral. And what we faced that day was someone expressing tyrannical approach to a democratic society. Incidentally, that is why our law firm went forward with this case. Uh, Andreas and I, we practice law. We read contracts. We do transactions. We write wills. This is certainly way outside of the realm of normal civil uh, legal work. But the reason we did this lawsuit is because we were horrified and offended and felt that the legal system was uh, a place to go to vindicate and to uh, express the moral outrage that we felt. And it's not just moral outrage. Tell me what happened to your clients. Our, our clients were peaceably demonstrating. We're talking about uh, women and children and young people who are enthusiastic about their points of view, expressing them in our country on, on U.S. soil, ex exercising their First Amendment rights of, of uh, demonstrating, of, of assembly, of free speech. And uh, the... Uh, we call them thugs, the, the bodyguards, the people who were protecting President Erdogan, came across police lines and beat up 
our clients, hit them on the head, kicked them, got them on the ground, uh, and uh, bloodied them significantly to the point where uh, several of them were severely hurt. You know, add to not, not to mention the post-traumatic stress disorder that they experience even to this day psychologically. And add to that the context of it all. The context here it matters a lot because these, these people, who are they? Many have immigrated to the U.S. for a new beginning because their daily life was one of pressure, opposition, and eradication of the dignity that we all expect in a free society. So they come here where they're told, you have freedom, you have dignity, and they peaceably come together, they peaceably assemble to say, hey, Mr. Erdogan, what you're doing back uh, to, mar to our people, or, and then those who are not of Kurdish descent who joined as well, saying, you know, what you're doing is wrong. And they were then physically beaten, but physically beaten by people who are trained to inflict pain, damage, and people who are trained to inflict lethal pain and damage. So it's not as if someone just punched you out, you had a disagreement on a street corner. You had a trained paramilitary force attack peaceful protesters who already have a history of being maligned by, by this government. Your complaint mentions, I believe it's 18 individuals uh, on the Turkish side, some of them wearing uh, suits and earpieces uh, and, and carrying guns. These were uh, security people. And then also paramilitary people wearing khaki uniforms and boots, also Combat armed. boots. Yeah, 19 people. 19. Mm. I stand corrected. You also mention in your complaint the president of Turkey, Erdogan, who was visiting uh, President Trump on this occasion, and this was the occasion of the protests. What role do you believe President Erdogan plays in this? Uh, we believe that President Erdogan is the one that ordered the attack. We have uh, pictures showing him in the car in his limousine as he pulled up to the uh, Turkish residence for the ambassador, uh, uh, calling over the head bodyguard and effectively directing him to tell his guys to go down and attack the demonstrators at Sheridan Circle. So we believe that uh, President Erdogan had a direct engagement and really was the director of this horrible event. You've also quoted uh, a dialogue between the Turkish security officials and the uh, metropolitan uh, police officers on hand? Well, before quoting that dialogue, we also, I will spell this out for you, Dalin Dior, D-A-L-I-N, D-I-Y-O-R. That's Turkish for, he says, attack. At be seconds, moments prior to the, the attack being unleashed, the head of Erdogan's security detail leans into Erdogan's car, has communications with him, then communicates into, with another guard who communicates into his earpiece, and then boom, they spring into the attack. So Dalin Dior is basically the beginning of the conspiracy to attack these protesters. Uh, in terms of, I think, what you just asked now, exchanges with Metropolitan, Metropolitan Police Department, look, the Metropolitan Police were there to create a cordon, as they do in many protests, if not all protests, of, of, of substance, to ensure that opposing sides don't get too close to each other. But the pro-Erdogan group that had assembled outside of the Turkish ambassador's residence, which vastly outnumbered the protesters and included... Uh, Turkish presidential uh, protection detail, paramilitary forces, 
pro-Erdogan people and the foreign service officers were gathered there and they were shouting at the police officers to, that we're going to get them if you don't. Of course, this is an issue of American civil rights, but it comes in the backdrop of, of an issue of Turkish civil rights and events in Turkey and Kurdish rights. Tell us about that backdrop and how that plays into this whole case. I think that's actually one of the most pertinent questions because we have thousands of dignitaries coming to the U.S. every year. When's the last time you've ever heard of a foreign dignitary unleashing his security detail and protesters? You haven't, right? It doesn't happen. So why did this happen? Because Erdogan conducts himself and his government conducts himself this way in Turkey. They've managed to suppress not just dissent, but all freedoms. And they've managed to do this by, uh, you know, eradicating any sense of opposition in government. They've put over 100,000 people have been arrested since the 2016 coup. All of the media has been brought under the control of the AKP government. There's no dissension. So Erdogan is Erdogan the Magnificent, as, as Madeleine Albright writes in her book, uh, Fascism, Chapter 7, Erdogan the Magnificent, that he has conquered his own country with a tyrannical ambition. And he expressed that on American soil to send a message back to Turkey. I can get you anywhere without hindrance. Two of your five plaintiffs, I believe, are, uh, are listed as John Doe. Why did you do it that way? We presented uh, a motion to the judge that we didn't want to name uh, some of our individual clients because they were concerned that if their names appeared on this complaint in this country, that their families would be uh, harmed back in Turkey. So when we presented that petition to the judge, she uh, recognized the concern and allowed us to proceed naming them only as John Doe plaintiffs and not putting their name in, in a public place. The whole mindset in Turkey is very different when it comes to uh, free speech. Uh, uh, there's a, ver a relevant law that you cite, Article 301 of the Turkish Penal Code, which I have understood as making it a crime to insult Turkishness. Tell us about that and, and what role that may play in the mindset of the Turkish government. So Article 301 is a long-standing uh, piece of uh, the Turkish Penal Code that actually, um, uh, even in, uh, when Turkey was trying to join the EU or negotiating to join the EU, that was something the European Union demanded be reformed. Uh, it was also something that was demanded be reformed uh, by the U.S. State Department. Why? Article 301 says it's an insult uh, actionable by criminal penalty to offend the Turkish nation or Turkishness. Now, this goes to the heart of the modern Turkish Republic established by Kemal Ataturk because the, uh, what he said was, happy is he who calls himself a Turk. Not he who is, but he who calls himself. And that is because the founding mythology of the country, like any country, is to, to identify your national identity. So if you speak in any way that is offensive to the government, you can be prosecuted. Now, why is this a problem? Because if you say, I don't like President Erdogan and his policies, you could be charged with offending Turkishness. So this vague and formless use of the word 
results in prosecution. And how can you be prosecuted? A, uh, uh, any citizen could just walk over to the Turkish prosecutor and say, I heard my neighbor speak horribly of the president, and you'd be prosecuted. That was amended uh, it, based on all the pressure that I told you about so that you could only proceed with case if the prosecutor's office said so. Well, that hasn't helped because the prosecuting officer is a hyper-nationalist authority that promotes now a more Islamic identity to mean what it means to be Turkish. And in addition, uh, you have the uh, issue of the coup that was attempted against Erdogan in 2016 that has resulted in a big crackdown in uh, Turkish society. Tell us about the role that plays in all of this. Well, I, I think that that plays a role in context again. Uh, as you know, there's tremendous distance now uh, between ever since the George W. Bush administration and Turkey. We've been growing ever distant. The 2016 uh, attempted coup, uh, which looks like it, it, it worked to consolidate power in the hands of Erdogan, has worked to offer a stage to Erdogan to demand that um, Fethullah Gulen, which is an Islamic cleric based in the Poconos in Pennsylvania, to be extradited for prosecution to Turkey. Uh, Turkey has been unable to secure that, uh, that extradition because there's not enough evidence to prove that Gulen inspired that, that uh, coup. So that's the first thing. As a result of that coup, though, Erdogan has been able to go out and publicly say, we have terrorists in our midst, we have traitors in our midst, these are all Gulenists. So, if he doesn't like someone, he says they're a Gulenist, and the end result is firing over, I think, 200,000 people from state positions, incarcerating over 100,000, putting in jail more journalists than any other country in the world, more than China that has a billion four people that routinely puts uh, journalists in jail, and then has taken this very aggressive approach to attacking any minority, anyone who is other in Turkey as a result of this coup. And all of this uh, aggressiveness and, and anger and uh, politics entered into, we believe, the attack on people who were demonstrating at Sheridan Circle and just expressing their points of view. Erdogan's people, Erdogan, saw this as kind of an extension of what uh, Andreas was speaking of. There's an invidious hate. There's an invidious hate. Now, the Trump administration has had a very mixed record vis-a-vis -vis Turkey. The, the president early on has expressed uh, uh, admiration for many authoritarian strongmen around the world. He's also been very critical of Turkey, and they're uh, holding in captivity for a period an American pastor. And now uh, some sanctions have been imposed on Turkey. How would you assess the Trump administration's reaction to this violation of American civil rights? Uh, you're speaking about our lawsuit. We don't, we don't know what the Trump administration's view is of our lawsuit. We do uh, see that it, the Trump administration's dealings with Turkey are all mixed up. You know, on the one hand, we're talking about a NATO ally, and we're talking about uh, a country that has um, uh, a place for U.S. military support. We're also talking about a country that has... Uh, a different view from from our view as to what what's going on with Syria and, and the uh, civil war in Syria. We're talking about a country that has uh, a mixed point of view when it comes to uh, their dealings with Israel 
and how that impacts U.S. policy towards Israel. So it's really a mixed bag of uh, a lot of insane uh, crosswinds back and forth politically. Right. And bring it back to our case, there, there, there are two things that occurred that'll make you scratch your head. Um, earlier we said there were 19 people who were charged. Of those 19, 15 were part of the Turkish security detail. On the eve of uh, at then Secretary Rex Tillerson's travel to Turkey to meet with Çavuşoğlu, the foreign minister, and to meet with Erdogan, they ultimately dropped charges inexplicably against 11 individuals. We've sought an explanation for it and can't. We don't. We have not been able to get one. And something else that I find rather, I'm going to say, really scratching our heads on this one, is that we have filed requests various government agencies to provide us with any documentations or any communications that have occurred relevant to this attack. So has the State Department had any communications with any Turkish representatives? And we basically get a response, uh, we don't have anything for you. Recently, the attorneys representing the Republic of Turkey asked for us to consent to an extension of time for them to file their responsive pleading. And we said, sure. So they had an unopposed motion. Interestingly, in their motion, they write one of the paragraphs, and the Republic of Turkey is having communications with the State Department about this controversy. So, whereas the State Department had nothing to offer us, the Republic of Turkey puts in their own unopposed motion that, oh, we're talking to the State Department, there might be some other way to handle this. We've submitted multiple uh, Freedom of Information Act requests to the State Department and others, and they've all come back where, with no information whatsoever. So it was very interesting, as Andrea said, that the uh, lawyers for Turkey actually acknowledged in, in their uh, request of the court for an extension of time to answer our lawsuit that there are communications going on, but we've been told there aren't any. Right. Many people criticize plaintiffs' uh, lawyers um, calling them ambulance chasers, looking for a quick buck. You folks obviously don't fall in that category. You have a, a varied law practice, and this is a sidelight. But some people might say, are they really just looking for publicity, or do they really think they can recover the $10 million in damages uh, they're asking for in this case? Do you think this is a real case that you can win? We certainly are optimistic that we can obtain for our clients significant compensation. Uh, the... Uh, legal work will be extensive to get to that point. We're, we're not kidding ourselves. There's a, a, a tremendous road ahead of lots of legal fighting, lots of efforts in court, lots of motions, and uh, we're going to have to fight all of that in order to achieve anything in this case. It's not going to be an easy case. Uh, but we're, we're up to it because we believe that we are doing the right thing. And this is not only uh, an effort to gain compensation for people who were physically and psychologically injured, but also a way to make a statement that this kind of activity of thugs beating up demonstrators will not be something that we can allow in our country. You know, it's often said that no one loves a lawyer until they need one. And I would just direct people to our clients and how they feel about the fact that for the first time in their life, they're able to stand up against a tyrant. They're able to stand up against something that has offended not only themselves and, and subjected them to physical attack, but offended their parents, their grandparents, and even their great-grandparents. 
and we make a living, you know? And do we, is this going to be a guaranteed living for us? Is this going to be something that's going to make us, uh, you know, imminently rich? No. So it, it's not about the money. It is about the case, and we're motivated. And what are the latest developments, and how long do you think this will last? I understand you, uh, the State Department has sent your complaint to the Turkish government. Yes, it took us four efforts to even get Turkey served. There's a, a, a whole a mechanism to get service of a federal lawsuit. Turkey uh, rejected each one of them. We finally had to get a court order that uh, permitted service on or d required service on Turkey through the State Department, the State Department delivering our complaint to the ambassador in Turkey and then the ambassador in Turkey through diplomatic channels delivering it to the Turkish government. For all the prior three efforts, Turkey turned, uh, turned the, uh, their back, uh, its back on us and refused to accept service. So we finally have them served. They have to now requ uh, respond. The court's given them till April to do it. And once uh, we see their response, we're off and running. Any sense how long this will take? I'm estimating it's going to take several years. Um, an FSIA challenge, if, let's say we prevail uh, on the jurisdictional issue, the foreign sovereign has the right for an immediate appeal on that issue, unlike your customary litigation. Um, so, you know, they'll take appeals, we'll take appeals maybe, um, and you'll work through a lot of issues. Um, and so it's going to take some time. Yeah. We're in the federal district court right now in the District of Columbia. They take their appeal. It goes to the, the uh, circuit court in the federal circuit court in the District of Columbia. Who knows? It might end up in the Supreme Court even after that. So there's a long legal road ahead. And are you handling the case pro bono? We have a fee agreement with our clients as a percentage of uh, the compensation we're able to get. But as Andreas was saying, this is not a case where the, the legal fee is, is what's motivating us. It's, it's the accomplishment of something that's right and just. Without getting into the specifics of the retainer, it's not pro bono. But if you look at the complaint itself, you see that we have a cause of action uh, based on the D.C. Hate Crimes Act. Um, that legislation also allows for reasonable attorney's fees. All right, gentlemen, thank you so much uh, for taking the time. Uh, quite an interesting case you're involved with. Thank you. Thank, thank you for you. coming down. Thank here. you for, for this. To listen to more podcasts with John Metaxas, go to johnmetaxas.com.